0: Hello, I'm Abigail and this is The Eco Enthusiast, a podcast where we explore the world of everyday people making a difference in the environmental movement. From busy parents to community leaders, we chat with a diverse group of individuals who are using their skills and passions to create positive eco change in their communities and beyond. Whether you're just starting your sustainability journey or you're a seasoned pro we hope to inspire and empower you to take action and make a positive impact on our planet so join us and let's start building a better future together today we are honored to have as our guest james forbes the ceo of the jane goodall institute australia with over 20 years of experience in the charity sector james has dedicated his career to promoting environmental conservation and sustainable development He began his career in the corporate world and made the courageous decision to follow his passion and align his career with his values. James took a significant pay cut to join the nonprofit sector, but his decision has led to a fulfilling and impactful career. In 2022, he was shortlisted as Non-for-Profit Executive of the Year. Through his leadership, the Jane Goodall Institute has been at the forefront of innovative and impactful initiatives to protect endangered species, empower local communities, and inspire the next generation of conservationists. Join us as we learn from James's wealth of experience and insights on the critical issues facing our planet today. Hi, James. Hi, James. How are you?
1: Good. Good. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Very well, thanks.
1: Excellent. (laughs) Excellent.
0: Well, thanks. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, James. I really am wanting to know a lot more about your career and what you're doing at the, at the Jane Goodall Institute, but I just wanted to firstly start by saying congratulations on being shortlisted as nonprofit executive of the year for 2022. It's pretty incredible. How did did that feel?
1: Look, it feels feels great to be, I guess, recognised by your peers and, you know, so much of what you do in the field you're doing behind the scenes. It's like being, you know, backstage. You're not getting all the plaudits as the stage manager um, yeah. and, 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 and props manager. Um, uh, you know, you don't get out there and, and uh, accept the flowers on stage. Uh, yeah. so, so in a sense, that's what this is is like. You know, people see the the, the impact of charities and not-for-profit organisations in the sort of public domain through their social media accounts and their annual reports, but they don't necessarily understand what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, and uh, and there's a lot of moving parts.
0: Yeah, and what makes a good non for profit executive, in your opinion?
1: Uh, you need to be very adaptable. You need mm. to be comfortable with uncertainty and change. And you need to be extremely resilient. Um, I think uh, it is not for the faint-hearted. Uh, I think it's more difficult to run a, a, a million-dollar charity than it is to run a multi-million-dollar uh, multinational. To be perfectly honest sure. with you, um, I think there is uh, so much volatility in 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 where you derive your revenue, and because a charity or a not-for-profit is judged the same way as a business is yeah. uh, or a private sector entity. In other words, we are required to adhere to the Corporations Act. In other words, we're not able to trade insolvently, just like any business. Uh, that means the greatest stress the chari- charity faces is is how does it keep a reliable revenue stream so it can remain a going concern and that the directors are fulfilling their fiduciary duties. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people forget that. A lot of people forget that a charity is actually a business. Um, it's a business delivering uh, programs on an ongoing basis, and it's uh, and it is required to adhere to the same legal. Uh, firmament as, as any other business. The only difference between us is that we're not distributing funds to shareholders or to other beneficiaries. That is the only difference. So when we drill down into what it means to be not-for-profit, um, it simply means that we're not distributing our, our profits to shareholders or other beneficiaries. That's it. Otherwise, in every other respect, we are the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it always bugs me when people say, oh, I'm not going to donate to that, that charity because it just goes to the admin. It's like, of course it's going to, of course it's going to, it's a business. Like people are working there. It has to. Yeah. And and every
1: charity's administration structure is different. Yeah, And because, because the public expects us to have, uh, to be accountable and to be transparent, uh, we are subject to uh, a, a range of compliance processes, as we should be, um, but that compliance process uh, requires a lot of administration, um, yeah. and so those funds are, and and you know. Uh, You tell me an insurance company that's willing to offer us workers' compensation at 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 a zero premium. There are none. You tell us uh, uh, public liability that are offer to offer us public liability insurance for zero dollars. There are none. So if you're a donor. The greatest thing you can do is say to a charity how do we help you get your overhead out of the way because that's all that administration is it's overhead it's the uh, unavoidable costs that a charity must bear in order to deliver its programs and if you have uh, additional funds or you're giving twenty dollars just say no i'm going to give 25 because i want to help I'm, i want that five dollars to go to their administration yes uh, because If if we're not focused on worrying about our overhead, we can focus more on our impact. I can have my team spending more time on what we're doing to deliver for the outcomes we're trying to deliver. So it's just a stupid and ridiculous accusation at this yes. level of charities, I know. Uh, and uh, it, it frustrates me. I don't walk into a car dealership to buy my latest model Subaru or Toyota and say to the uh, to the dealer, "Oh, um, I'm not going to pay your forty thousand dollar price tag. I'm only going to pay thirty thousand because I think your your shiny showroom, you shouldn't have spent that money, yes. uh, and 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 you know that desk that you're sitting at that I, I think that's more expensive than you should have. I mean. It's just absurd it's so absurd you, you, you would not say that to a business so why are you saying it to a charity at the end of yeah. the day I am working every day to try and remain solvent
0: yeah and yeah.
1: and and that means that I am thinking about where I can cut costs without cutting programs and and, and cutting staff so I can't I, I, I can't deliver programs yeah so you know people need to think really carefully about what Admin means, yeah. uh, and the media do us no favours. They 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 get caught up in this and accuse charities one one of another of wasting all this money. Well, you you tell me how how else I'm going to cover these overheads? Yeah, Please
0: yeah.
1: It, it always bugs me and, when I hear and, it. Yeah, and when and when your when your audience have got a solution for me, I'd love. I'm all ears.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wonder, yeah, I hope it um, can be more people, more people from charities speaking about this because it is so redi- It's absurd to me when I hear it, but I probably was part of that com- like making those comments years ago as well, when I wasn't really conscious of, of just what it really takes to, you know, to, to create a charity or to maintain a charity. It's, it's so weird to me when I hear it these days, people go, Oh, I, I've heard a lot of that goes to admin. And it's like, of course it does. Of course it does, but that's what the I want. charity to- can't
1: operate. The charity <laughs> yeah. can't operate without it. It's yes, as as
0: that. and I want—I yeah. want it to go to the admin. They're working really hard to do great things, so yeah. of course and, they should and, be paid. And,
1: You know, this is this is where corporations and uh, you know large philanthropists. So I've had. I've had a large donor in the past at a charity I worked at say, I'd like you to put this towards staff development or staff training because one of the other things that charities don't have the luxury of doing is often spending much on developing the skills and the abilities and capabilities of their team because that's seen as wasteful, right? And yet the more effective you are as a team to deliver your impact, the more capability you've got, the corporations grab all these graduates out of university because well they can pay the big bucks so why would you as a graduate out of university go and work for a charity when you could work for a corporation because you're going to earn higher dollars but that sets up a, a, a power imbalance from the very start Yeah, and that is that a lot of charities uh, are, are forced to uh, take on people with less skills in order to be able to do what they do and and I think that's, that's an unfair imbalance. There's a, there's a great TED Talk uh, by, by Dan Paletta on, on YouTube that, that goes into this saying, you know, we should be thinking about paying people who work in really important social organisations like charities and other not-for-profits uh, more money <laughs> because the value they're creating yeah. isn't measured in, in terms of profitability, it's measured in terms of outcome and impact. Um, And that's how we should be judged. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that charities shouldn't be accountable. Uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be transparent. We should be. And we are. We produce an annual report. We produce audited financial statements. Uh, There is a very strict compliance process that we are subject to. So, uh, and that's as it should be. But I want people to understand that that comes with a cost and that isn't a cost we can defray easily. Uh, they are direct expenses that come out of our, of our balance sheet as cash. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Uh, so adaptability is, an, is the biggest strength you think a, a non, non-for-profit CEO must have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how did your life's journey lead you to this position and how long have you been, how long have you been working at the Jane Goodall Institute?
1: So I've been with um, the Jane Goodall Institute, or or I'll refer to it as JGI by the acronym, um, uh, for nearly five years. So four and a half going on five years. I I came to the CEO role as many new first time CEOs do um, by taking on an interim position. So I I, I replaced uh, someone who went on maternity leave um and over a period of time she chose not to return and also moved country so uh, uh then the board appointed me the uh to the position on a permanent basis um and I was also the first full-time staff member so we have eight staff um we only have uh two members that are full-time the rest are all part-time uh which alludes back to what we were talking about just before about capacity constraints I'd love all that those eight staff to be full time, frankly, but I just don't have the funds to do that. So, so we're always kind of working at the margins to try and escalate our impact while struggling to pay people to deliver it. Um, but in terms of coming back to your original question, I think um, uh, you know I've been in the charity space for about twenty odd years. Uh, prior to that, I I worked in uh, commercial space for hotels and events and um uh, you know that was a kind of a career choice that was a very much a sort of a um it just happened i suppose uh, i didn't put a great deal of planning i didn't know what i wanted to do when i was younger um but i made a very strategic decision about 20 odd years ago to go into the charity sector um and because i wanted to do something that was going to make a difference you know for me um uh, I'm, I'm not driven by you know enormous salaries and and uh, all of that sort of thing it's not the thing that actually drives me it's not part of my value set um, uh, obviously you want enough money to live on but I, I have that and I'm uh, you know I think comfortable in, in, a, in, a, in a modest way um, but yeah so it's it, it and in the 20 years I've been in the charity sector I've worked Across a variety of organisations uh, in HIV/AIDS, uh, in the arts, um, and uh, in education, and in and in the environment, Wonderful. and I've worked with every, from everything from sort of large global NGOs like WWF Australia uh, to very local um, uh, dance companies uh, like the the Bondi Ballet, which um, uh, which was a very small Sydney-based dance company.
0: I mean, you've kind of detailed this a little bit already but what is the best part about being uh, an executive of the Jane Goodall Institute and what is the the shit sandwich I mean have you told us a little bit about the shit like (laughs) the shit sandwich already uh it sounds like it sounds kind of very stressful and that you have to you're constantly you know trying to keep it afloat but yeah could you tell us about the the best of this job and position and 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 the, the
1: struggles uh, the best thing is uh without question having the the great privilege of working for one of the most iconic women in the world um and uh you know jane herself dealing with jane herself is is you know uh wonderful and and i, I don't get to speak to her very often um uh obviously i've met her and 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 she last visited australia in 2019 um just before the pandemic well about a year before actually um and uh you know we did an australian tour and and that was absolutely wonderful and she's got a wicked sense of humor and enjoys a whiskey every day and and so on and um you know i think as as a as founders go um i've also uh, worked for founders in the sector um which has been incredibly depressing so uh you know um you're brave if you're taking on uh, working for founders that can be really problematic and and my message to all founders is 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 um, you know then there comes a time when it's it's your role to sort of move out and maybe take on a more titular role and let the organization mature and expand as it should. Um, but some people find that very difficult to do and they're d- determined to keep the hands on the tiller um, and that can create a really uh, negative culture for those people who work in in those particular entities but I think that's absolutely the the, the positive. The other positive about my, my job is obviously the impact, the work that we do, um, both in terms of, uh, you know, traditional chimp conservation across Africa but for a lot of people wouldn't know that the Jane Goodall Institute has a youth program called Roots and Shoots was started in Tanzania in 91. It's in more than 60 countries around the world, including Australia, and what we roll out here is a lot of environmental education programs from 4,000 resource boxes for schools around Australia to term-long curriculum-aligned programs that teach kids about wildlife uh, and their habitats. Um, to education and employment pathway programs like uh, Embrace the Wild that's aimed at disadvantaged communities. We have, uh, I guess, a a vision to be an organisation that takes young people and sets them up for uh, having an environmental practice and sustainability mindset irrespective of what career they go into. We don't want, uh, we're not not here to produce lots of, you know, uh, primatologists or ethologists. Uh, or other scientists we we're here to encourage anyone irrespective of their field of endeavor to 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 be thinking about what their impact on the environment is every single day um and particularly in the in the career that they choose to take on so that's that's you know a big part of uh, of what makes uh, life positive and and then also the pleasure of working with a great team that's another positivity um I'm very fortunate and blessed to have a great team around me of both staff and volunteers and a terrific board uh when it comes to what you described at the the shit sandwich um I think it comes back to uh the volatility in revenue and um the difficulty in sometimes working with um uh wealthy donors be they Uh, private be they corporate be they government be they foundation um and sometimes you have despite your best efforts to build relationships uh they they move on so there's a lot of fluctuation that goes on um and some of it's outside your control and then you've got to work you know 10 to the dozen to kind of replace funding that may have been pulled out um and i've had many sleepless nights about that uh that you know, causes me a great deal of grief because coming back to our earlier points, you know, the board is concerned about uh, the organization's ability to trade solvently as it must do under the corporations act. And without, um, uh, certainty in terms of revenue streams, um, it, it, it makes that really difficult, really challenging. And if we trade insolvently, we're shut down, that's it. It's all over red Rover. Uh, there is no more Jane Goodall Institute, Australia. So, you know that bears down on me quite a lot, and I—I I not only am the CEO, but I'm also the main fundraiser for the organisation because we're a very small organisation. I don't have a team of fundraisers, yeah. Um, so I do a lot of the donor cultivation and asking and stewardship and you know grant applications and so on. Um, uh, yeah, so that that's that's kind of the that's the heart of what is really challenging about it.
0: And I mean, is it hard not to take all of that like personally? Like, you, when you're actively asking always for money, like it's it's hard to ask for things in life and get a no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it is it difficult, or or are you kind of immune to that now? You kind of it, does, does it not affect you on a human level?
1: No, I look, I, I'm I'm somewhat immune to that. Yeah, I I, I think you can't be you know a, a good CEO. Uh, and a good executive is, you know, exercise their exercises their impartiality, and yeah. and impartiality is, I guess, another good skill to know and understand. Uh, it's not your it's not your personal life; it's your professional life. And when people are saying no to you, they may be saying no, no for a range of reasons that has yeah. got nothing to do with you. So it's very important that one doesn't take these things personally sometimes it's difficult however when you're dealing with perhaps a very wealthy billionaire um, as i have recently and they uh, decline you on the basis of a relatively modest request uh, and then you learn in the media that they've just spent you know half a billion dollars of their wealth on acquiring a a significant um, property asset uh, in a major capital city in australia and i uh i I sit there and kind of scratch my head uh and go you know for probably less than one percent of that investment you could endow us with funds that would enable us to be sustainable
0: yeah yeah i would find that really hard
1: so so it's hard because you know i've got a connection to this person we're making asks to support us in a fairly modest way. Uh, they have supported us in the past, but I... Yeah, I really struggle with the the incredible imbalance that it feels like there is out there around very wealthy people using their wealth... I mean, that they, they have the right to do with their wealth whatever they wish, right? Yeah. Um, but when you're laying claim to this idea of being a philanthropist, um, you um, you know, you want to think, well, how can I make more of an impact? And, you know, I saw an article the other day on Pro Bono Australia, which is a, a news feed that supports the charity sector, and there was a really interesting article on there about um, how philanthropy is changing. And one of the key changes I'm seeing in philanthropy is, is philanthropists asking charities. What is it you need what is it how can we how can our investment in what you're doing in other words listening to us rather than going i've got a vanity charity you know it's really important for me to support you know uh, pediatric oncology or you know uh, you know contemporary dance or whatever whatever your interest in the envir- in in the charity sector is um but rather than just making a donation Maybe talk to the charity and sit down with them and say, "How, if we were to give you this amount, how would that make a difference for what you're trying to do? Or what level of investment would set you up for success?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So shift the power around so that we're not coming to you going, oh, please give us money yeah, because we're going to make a difference, but rather ask us what would it take for you to be successful? If yeah. more philanthropists asked charities that question, we'd see really great change and great impact. Because at the moment we're just dancing around the margins.
0: Yeah, yeah. We are
1: just dancing around the margins. And why are we, we dancing around the margins? Because billionaires are spending huge chunks of their assets on, uh, on uh, investing in other assets rather than social change, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, you look at people like Bill Gates, um, you know, he's doing an amazing job. He's sort of going to divest most of his wealth uh, to invest in his charity space. And I, I wish more billionaires would do what Gates is doing. I think I think there's, um, uh, there's, there's, there's... We're going to see more change, more impact, if that money is more equally distributed. Um, yeah. And we know that in the last 20, 25 years, we've seen a, a, a rise in the number of billionaires that exist on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, we know that there's more poverty. We know that there's more inequality. Uh, so, you know, what, what we're doing in terms of the environment or uh, education or uh, various other things, um, uh, we're only chipping away at the margins we're not making substantive headway and and that's for, and that's because we don't have the investment yeah. so uh, until until philanthropy and the corp even the corporate sector as well I mean if the phila- philanthropic and corporate sector and government sectors came together and said you know look here are the the kind of key areas that we want to see um uh you know change in terms of accountability um who can we get to deliver this change, then we'd see, and, and we, we, we put a number on that, then we'd see some real impact. Um, on our side, the change, there are 600,000 not-for-profits in Australia, which is ridiculous. I think there is an absolute need on the charity side for merging of organisations. Yeah. Because when you think about it, when I was talking about the issue of overhead, if you've got a bazillion different char- charities or not-for-profits, Um, And a large number of them are working on the same problem. Surely merging many of them together and emerging is not always feasible or or, or an option for all, but uh, there are plenty where that could make a difference. And I often see someone who's been affected by something, they go, oh, I'm going to start a charity to solve that problem. Well, the question I want to ask you is there not some charity out there already doing that?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, And if there is, don't start a new one. Go and meet them, sit down with them and work out how you can raise the money to do what you want to do through them. So you're not duplicating overhead. Yeah, yeah. There's a role we can play in the sector itself in minimising that overhead by combining organisations where that's feasible. It's not always feasible. But where
0: it is, it's it's an odd thing, isn't it? I mean, I've heard people talk about this before, how people get panicked about something and then they go and start their own their own charity or something like that, their own project. And it is it is a weird thing that humans are doing that rather than making the obvious choice, which is to go and look for what's already there. Why do you think people do that?
1: Uh, well, I think it's driven by a crisis so you know yeah someone's been personally affected by something yes um and uh and that then in order to deal with the you know often it's grief and loss um uh, but not always i mean there's 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 all sorts of reasons people start their own organizations and 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 there's so there's so much diversity within the sector. It's it's impossible to to say that this is this is applicable across all of these scenarios. But you know, there's often a situation where someone's experienced loss, and so they go out and and um, uh, you know, commence something because they feel there isn't something there doing what 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 is needed to be done. But again, I argue that if. If it's not there, then bring the proposal to an existing organisation that works in a related space and help them build out that project within the within the framework of their organisation. Yeah. Because they're they've already got the offers, they're already paying the compensation, they're already paying dealing with the compliance, they're already dealing with all the all these costs that you, as a new charity organisation, are going to have to bear. Yeah. Separately. So, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: no, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so you talked about some of the projects um, that you have going at the Jane Goodall Institute. Is there one that you would highlight, one that you would love people to get behind, or is that really unfair to ask you to to choose one?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I suppose it's a bit like saying, you know, which is your favourite child? (laughs) uh, I was thinking that. (laughs) But, look, I'd say that at the moment I think the, the, the project that excites me the most because it's also about the one that has the potential to make us a sustainable organisation into the future is Rewild Your School. Um, It's a program that we piloted during the pandemic uh, to 13 schools across Australia. Um, It is a program that um, uh, is term long. Um, It's a link to the curriculum. Um, So it's designed to uh, totally cater for teachers in primary school, uh, to deliver. It's step-by-step, step. so whether the teachers have got any background in STEM is immaterial. Uh, our program makes it really super easy to deliver. Uh, the, the, the school or the class that books the program uh, chooses a champion animal and then they learn all about that animal's life cycle. Um, you know, from how it breeds to how it, the habitat that it needs to survive to its food uh, and, and and also the threats that exist to, to it. So, um, uh, and then they go through the process of doing a planting day, allocating an area on the school grounds, planting uh, plants that support the, the, um, that, that animal that they've, they've selected. We've got 22 champion animal species in the program that they can choose from. Uh, they're relatively ubiquitous, um, if I can even say it's probably a con- contradiction in terms, uh, but uh, they are ubiquitous. Um, uh, they're easily found and the reason for that is that we want the kids to uh, be able to find uh, these animals uh, fairly easily. The other exciting thing about the program is that it's linked into a a game called Guardians of Earth um, and uh, before people start to panic about the idea of of gamifying nature, uh, to succeed in this game, you must engage with nature. Um, so the steps through the game require the, the the children to step out of the game and uh, get out into nature to to connect with it, and then come back and interpret it through a variety of forms, not just in terms of, I guess, observation, you know, scientific observation, uh, which is a very Western idea, but also to describe, to paint, to draw, to Create songs uh, uh, those those animals uh, and bring into being a kind of indigenous knowledge system about understanding nature one that's one that's a little more creative and spiritual and less about and and also inclusive. In other words, our indigenous brothers and sisters, um, you know, when they think about uh, nature, they think about it not as something to observe but something they are part of. Whereas our Western tradition has very much separated us from nature and made us the objective observers, which is ridiculous because we need nature for food, we need nature to breathe, we need nature for all uh, our very existence. So this 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 ludicrous notion that uh, we can be objective um, is is a conceit that our Indigenous brothers and sisters has sh- have shown up for for its conceit. Indigenous people had understood nature uh, at, at a very integrated level for thousands and thousands of years. They had a, uh, a sustainable society that, you know, until Europeans turned up 230 odd years ago, uh, would have continued. Whereas in the West, we build civilizations, you know, be it, 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 be it Greece, be it Egypt, be it Rome, and be our modern nation states, which are barely 150, 200 years old, And these will fall as well if we don't learn from our First Nations brothers and sisters around the globe because they have the solutions to the problems we're facing. That's what excites me about programs like the kind that we're developing because they are structural. They are about thinking about uh, human existence on this planet in a sustainable way and teaching children about that so that they bring together the best of... You know, it's not to say that the Western tradition and academic knowledge and science isn't valuable. Of course it's valuable. It has an absolute value. I'm not wishing to discredit it in that sense. But I think that we need to go forward thinking about it together with indigenous knowledge and bring those two knowledge systems together uh, and get the best of both worlds. Um, otherwise, with the biodiversity and climate crises we face, we are uh, you know, condemning ourselves to a, a very um, dire future.
0: What has been your most profound moment in nature?
1: My most profound moment in nature has been, you know, opportunities where I've been able to uh, spend time by myself and not think about time in nature as a transaction, but uh, I guess a meditation of sorts. And when I've engaged with nature that way, that's when I've understood Uh, my relationship and part of nature so that I am part of this process I'm not an observer an objective observer as I mentioned before and that nature is a great healer when we allow ourselves the space and time to uh, stop uh, and disconnect from our modern existence and allow nature to do its job and I know that may sound esoteric and metaphorical in a sense but but it's actually quite practical and tangible and uh when you uh go and uh, spend a uh, significant time in nature meditating and i've done 48 hour solos um uh that process naturally invites a uh, uh a, a resistance that comes up because it's like you know you want to fill I'm with something rather than just staying still and present. Um, But when you um, override that instinct that emerges, and really it's just a reaction to the fact that this is a habit or a pattern you've got into, an addiction of sorts, when you resist that urge and just let yourself sit and stay present in nature, over that 48-hour period, you start to relax and you start to heal and you walk out of that process with a perhaps a solution to a problem that you've been facing and nature's helped you conceive of that solution. Um, uh, a lot of First Nations groups call this vision questing it was part and parcel of uh, a lot of first nations cultures around the world where adolescents would be sent into nature away from their community and asked to spend time reflecting on their purpose and allowing that to just emerge and uh, and that would give them guidance and give and give them a sense of purpose but it also gives you a humility the moment we've got a global epidemic around narcissism And it's exemplified through some of our political leaders, past and present. And that narcissism is incredibly destructive uh, for us as a species because it talks about me as an individual and not me in terms of my shared responsibility with my family, my friends, my community and the role that I play giving. And we're most happy, actually, when as an individual, when we're giving of ourselves, when we're in service to something bigger than ourselves, not when we're taking what we need at the cost of others. Mm. So I think that's what nature and my experience in nature has taught me is, you know, that humility and 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 modesty is found because you when you spend that time you 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 realize the awesome power of nature that's kind of there all the time i mean you don't need to do the forty hours so you can go and just you know people know that if they go and spend a weekend away from the city and they go for a bushwalk or whatever that they'll get those benefits you do but a bushwalk is quite a transactional process it's like i'm going for a bushwalk it has a start and a finish and and i'm active in my thinking all the time but if you're if you stop in one place and don't move. And I challenge your listeners or viewers to to do this for forty eight hours. Um, then I, I can promise them that I'll you know get, they'll derive an enormous benefit from it that is incredibly valuable. So certainly I've found that, and I think if more of us did took took on those uh, uh, approaches, uh, we, we'd also help help us deal with our own mental health challenges and and, and so. So yeah. yeah, nature's, nature's the best healer.
0: Yeah. 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 I want to go and sit in the bush for 48 hours after that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a good idea. There's a philanthropist, Lynn twist. I'm sure you know her now, because you're, do you know Lynn twist? No, Okay. I don't know, well, she's like reading her book was like, it gave me a hell of a lot of hope. It's called the soul of money. And uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with her to be honest. She, she really has given me a lot of inspiration And uh, she believes now that we need to embrace the grandmother energy now that we're in this time of chaos. So kind of like exactly what you're talking about, that kind of slow, reflective energy. And there's another activity that I love, which is called Grandma's Advice, where you have to imagine that you are a really, really old woman coming towards the end of her life and she's got to pass on some advice to her grandchildren. If you were an old woman coming towards the end of her life what advice would you pass on to your grandchildren james
1: yeah it's kind of a it's a big question isn't it i think the only way i can answer that is you know through my own personal experience of some of the challenges i've had and uh, i guess some of the barriers i've i've put up and for myself i think it's 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 okay to not know what you want to do but if you don't know go and do a vision quest for 48 hours that'll help go and sit on a rock and disconnect from everyone else and just let whatever emerges emerge and you know if you set that intention that that will help and i'd encourage teenagers to do that you know when teenagers are going through this incredible change in their bodies be they boys or girls or trans you know that those changes are uh, you know are profound physical changes but you know that's also the perfect time because often a lot of parents who are dealing with teenagers express their frustration because they found you know the teenagers are disconnecting from them they're disconnecting from them because they're wanting to forge their own path and and we should be encouraging them to do that um and to 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 find their purpose um and to seek that sense of modesty and humility so i'd be I'd be advising them to uh, push their kids out the door and 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 go and do those nature solos as as much as possible. I think that uh, the other advice that I would would give people is is to try and not sweat the small stuff. I suppose we can get so obsessed with with little things we forget forget the bigger picture. And I think that's always been tremendously good good advice for me. Uh, it's sometimes very hard to do, though. We can get so absorbed in what the problems are right now. But I think always keeping an eye on the horizon is is a way to, you know, yes, you need to be focused on the present, but an eye on the horizon can remind you of, of your bigger picture. And that's what vision questing can do. It gives you that sense of, what what is my vision for the next phase or stage of my life? And and when things get tough, as they will invariably do, things will always be difficult. Well, not always be difficult, but you will go through periods of difficulty. Uh, you'll go through periods of joy, um, but you're not going to be happy all the time. Don't don't yeah. believe that that happiness is a permanent state. You don't want it to be either, because how would you know how to contrast why you're happy when you don't know what it is to be sad or miserable? And obviously, loss is an an inevitability. You know, you will lose people close to you your grandparents your parents your siblings your friends as you go through life and you know and and your and your furry friends as well when my when my dog died i was pretty inconsolable um and it had a incredibly negative effect and on on me physically remember that your brain and your stomach are are linked Uh, they often call the stomach the second brain and you know it's amazing how when you're experiencing grief that you know what's going on up here affects what's going on down there and vice versa yeah. so the way that you're processing loss is yeah is is challenging and it's so very individual isn't it the way that we deal with grief uh, the other advice i would i would say is you know be conscious of not seeing yourself as a victim because victim you know no matter how justified you may be um uh, in my in my life, you know, when I was fifteen, my father had attempted to take his own life, and I found him, um, and that that had a a very a, you know a large impact on me for a very long time, and and because I saw myself as a victim of the situation surrounding my parents' divorce and his attempted suicide, and I didn't even realise that I was living as a victim, so yeah. I didn't realise that I was. Uh, operating in this headspace that said, well, this these these shit things have happened to me, so I deserve to feel this way. And, you know, you all owe me something. Yeah. But that didn't get me very far. In fact, that 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 sent me further backwards. So it was only once I uh had an epiphany about uh the fact that I that was my headspace and that was my mindset, and that was my expectation, that by changing that, I was able to transform my life um, is, is all I can say. So it's, I think it... And, and there are many reasons why we might be a victim and many of them are incredibly justified. It could have been you know, sexual abuse as a child. It, it, it could have been bullying. It, it could have been a, a witnessing a, a traumatic event, a, a death or or, or or an accident or, you know, there's a myriad of things that can that can cause these things and position one as a victim. And, and often they happen to us as children and young people and that's not fair. It's not fair. And ideally these things shouldn't happen, but they do. And our job is to overcome our headspace around those traumatic events and seek to, I guess, transcend them. And the only way you transcend them is by changing your headspace around your status as a victim. And it's not easy. <laughs> I can tell you it took me 20 years to get to that point. I was a 15-year-old and it was not until I was 35 that I had that sort of road to Damascus moment. So, um Maybe this will help some people shortcut that <laughs> they don't spend twenty years living with a trauma that um, is is you know particularly difficult. So yeah, I think that's probably about enough for me. If I was the grandmother, that that probably covers it off for the moment. I'm sure there are other things I'd think of on another day, but yeah, no,
0: it's there are very, some very good advice. I, I love all of that. Um, with this ecological emergency that we're in, we have to make lots of changes, personal changes. Changes in community level, global level—it's a lot of change happening. The climate's changing. What is one thing you hope never changes?
1: Uh, human kindness. I mean, I know it might sound trite or a little bit cliched, but uh, I think we need it more than any, uh, more than ever at the moment. I find it extraordinary, that the kind of tribalism that we've fallen into—that's uh, been accelerated by social media and, in fact, encouraged by. Large social media outlets because it suits uh, their operation. This tribalism has, you know, given rise to uh, political threats that we thought were were kind of completed or finished or very much in the past. And the fact that they've kind of reared their ugly head um, places. Uh, democracy uh, for the first time in uh, a long time, I suppose, at, it at, at I would say, some of its most dire threats since the Second World War. So I think that, you know, the importance of being able to reach out and be kind to those people you disagree with on masses, rather than be angry and, and uh, you know, I understand the anger that's out there about issues that we're not facing up to like the climate crisis i get that people are angry but unfortunately hatred doesn't solve those problems and i think kindness goes an enormous way to yeah repairing the damage done to democracy and if you think of it as a as a local process it's something you can do and if you multiply that out in your community and you kind of you know i suppose the pay it forward idea is is is, is one way to do that in a practical sense that you know the more kindness you express at a local level and hopefully that then multiplies and on on social media don't get don't get swept up by it and you know that comment you wanted to make on that feed don't
0: Yeah. yeah you
1: know type it out and delete it or just just don't engage because we have the power you know the the, the the social media channels are playing on this outrage that we all feel about everything all the time and you know if we don't engage with it uh, we we that you know we're we're basically taking away the contract that we 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 have with these big social media entities uh, yeah. and they're relying on us to be outraged yeah. You know, and uh, that's not to say there aren't issues that are legitimately, you know, reasons for us to be outraged, but uh, the extent of it and, and, and the, the regularity of it is, I think, the thing that fascinates me.
0: I get outraged. You know, I get outraged by things, and I, I really am trying to train myself out of that. And there's one thing that I do now. I don't always do it, but I try to do it. It's from the book called I May Be Wrong, Um, written by a forest monk his biggest lesson of all was that whenever someone says something that you don't agree with before you respond to them say to yourself I may be wrong I may be wrong I may be wrong and then respond and you probably won't respond the reality is you probably won't respond but but I really I really like that little that little hum yeah
1: well, it's just—it's a process of just taking a breath, yes. or in this case, three breaths. And, and in those breaths, you know, thinking through what you're saying here. I mean, Jane Goodall herself talks about the only way we're going to solve these crises is by reaching out to people's hearts. And you do that by telling stories. You don't do that by bashing people over the head. Yeah. Um, because by bashing people over the head with, metaphorically speaking, of course, is you get them to retreat into their positions more strongly. So you don't bring and at the end of the day do you, do you, do you want them to do that or do you want to bring them along on your mission of change. Yeah. Well, then think carefully about what your the way in which you deliver your mission of change. And if you bring it from your heart, then you have more chance of being transformative than being angry. She's a
0: masterclass and that isn't she. She doesn't break a sweat. She's just and yeah. it's 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 incredible to watch because I you know I used to be so upset about this issue, made me so angry. And over you know over time I've just come to feel so much empathy for people rather than being judgmental like why aren't you doing it? Now I'm just like this is a really hard situation that we're all in. Really hard. And you're trying to live your life you know, you're losing people in your life. As you said, people's families, members die. It's Life is hard. So go gently with people. One last question and I'll let you get back to your very busy day. Um, what habit do you think every eco-enthusiast should pick up? What
1: habit? Um, being able to make change from a local perspective and then encouraging because at the end of the day uh, and this again you know I'll I'll quote Jane there's there's that maxim that we're, we're probably all familiar with about thinking globally and acting locally and she asks us to flip that idea on its head and act locally then think globally because if you think globally think about it for a second it's overwhelming there's too much going on oh, and that can kind of Uh, impact our motivation to to act locally. So don't don't deny the possibility that you taking action in your local community is a value because your leadership will be observed and will be seen and that then gets replicated. So what you want, I I think the greatest thing an eco activist to do is to start doing something near their home and to encourage the neighbor and the neighbor and the neighbor. And, you know, when you then start to multiply that action, you start to see real change. So, yes, there are lots of great big conservation organisations or environmental organisations doing great things. And, you know, whether they're doing advocacy to government, whether they're doing on-ground work, rewilding areas, whether they're doing species um, restoration um, and uh, reintroductions, all of those things are valuable. Um, But I, I don't think anything beats the power of being able to make change in your local community. And when you do that and you bring others along, you're also contributing to democracy because democracy at its heart is about local community engagement. And if you build that community cohesion, you build that sense of community at a local level, you are not just saving the environment, you're helping your democracy prosper. So I think that is a uh, win-win for all involved um so yeah i'd like to see more uh, eco activists thinking about what they can do at a local level and you know when you join roots and shoots as a member you get a great re- resource kit it's free to join um i will yes spruik roots and shoots at this point it's free to join you download the kit um it gets you to go out and look at what are the assets and liabilities in terms of the environment in your local community and what which which one of those do you want to address and you make the choice it's not up to us it's up to you so Uh, this is all about people understanding that they have agency and they have the power in their hands and the more they do it they'll be recognized they'll become a leader and others will will join them um and and so if we do that across the nation and around the world uh then uh you know when you think global it's not so uh, overwhelming
0: wonderful what thank you so much james it's been such a pleasure talking to you i feel very inspired um (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and i feel like i I know a lot more about how um these types of organizations work which is wonderful and i'm definitely going to go and sign up for the Roots roots and shoots for my community and for my son and all of that so very excited thank you so much
1: my pleasure abby all the best
0: thank you bye
1: see you later bye
0: that's it for the ego enthusiast this week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I certainly learned a lot. I felt like I had dropped in on a man in the middle of a very busy day doing a very stressful job of trying to keep of trying to keep this organization afloat. We really need to support people like James and people like Jane Goodall doing these wonderful things in the world. So I'm gonna head over to the Jane Goodall Institute webpage and see how I can get involved with the Roots and Shoots program here in in my community. As always, we finish with a nature poem. This week's poem was actually written by my sister. She did the activity of going out with her children into nature and they all wrote a nature poem each. So I'm going to be reading my sister's poem. If you would like to submit your nature poem, just go to www.theecoenthusiast.com and we would love to hear how you feel about your natural home or any poem you have created that is related to nature. That's it for today and we'll see you next week. Long blades towering above the tiny green leaves of hope for little ones believing in luck. Pink-plushed diamonds stand proud and tall amongst the grass. An ant masterfully marches to the peak of a shoot and seemingly peers into the distance. Brilliant blue in fragile frames hover overhead. The constant call of the cicada becomes a lullaby. I lay in the tiny jungle still, disappearing into the soil.